uh, welcome everybody to the inaugural broadcast of Women Who Code Radio. Uh, we're here with a couple of guests talking about career transitions. First up, we have Amanda, software engineer at Linden Lab, currently works on the back-end infrastructure team. Before she was at Linden, she was at General Assembly in a 12-week immersive web development program. Uh, and before coding, she was part of a startup changing the way justice works with sentenced individuals at the Reset Foundation. Amanda went to law school and majored in psychology at Brigham Young University. She no doubt loves her bubble tea, all forms uh, and types of dancing, and using technology to figure out more effective and personal solutions to mental health problems. And next up, we have Susan uh, Salaturo, <laughs> who is a lead build and release engineer at Pixar Studios. Uh, after graduating from Rice University as a math and English major, major, she's made many shifts in her career over the years, doing stints as a technical writer, infrastructure engineer, and information architect, as well as a build engineer, and considers herself proud to be a generalist. After stints working at various silicon companies, including Palm, she ended up in the computer graphics industry and never looked back. Given loads of time on her hands, a rare thing these days, she'd like nothing better than to be out in the Bay Area riding, road riding on her bicycle. I'm your host, Tara Hernandez, Director of Systems Engineering here at Linden Lab, and general all-around nerd when it comes to things like software infrastructure and diversity and inclusion in high-tech industry. You can find me on LinkedIn, where I occasionally post articles on management, and I'm also a tequilarista on Twitter, should you care for any of my musings in 140 characters or less. Today, as I've mentioned, we're talking about career transitions, and these ladies have all made a transition of one form or another. So let's go ahead and get started. Amanda, you started out in psychology and law, so what was the turning point for you to make that switch and, and, and sign up for General Assembly? Um, I think the turning point for me was coming to the Bay Area. Um, I had just gotten here. I had previously been in sort of a tech job, but um, Coming out here, I realized that technology could be a really interesting way to solve problems with mental health, which is what I really cared about. And um, I happened to stumble upon uh, General Assembly. There was a friend that I had that had um, taken a coding. Well, it was for a UX design course at General Assembly. And she told me about an info session that they were having that night. So I went over there, and when I got there, I just immediately felt like it was a fit and something I was excited about. So I signed up and started about a month later. <laughs> wow. You, yeah. don't, you don't waste any time. Yeah. Um, Susan, what about you? You did a math-English double major. It's like you took the SAT and like bundled <laughs> it up into your college career. Those so. are the best parts of the SAT. So. <laughs> Um, no, I actually I, I had kind of started out as a physics major, and by the time I realized that wasn't right for me, I had half a math major. So it was uh, seemed reasonable to just go ahead and complete that, along with my first love, which was really English and writing. Uh, so I, I kind of left college not having a clue what I would do with that and sort of fell into an internship in technical writing and to learn to love it because it really put the two sides of those disciplines really together really well. Uh, and it helped to have the credibility of a math major. <laughs> Sure, um, I can imagine. Yeah, and o over time, it just became more and more natural for me to gravitate in towards understanding how the software I was documenting actually worked. And I think that's what led to my transition into programming, and eventually build engineering was purely by chance. <laughs> but it has, it has turned out to work out well for me because I like uh, having my uh, knowledge in a bunch of different areas, and uh, it, it certainly has lent itself to that. So. so Excellent, thank you. Um, so General Assembly is a co-ed boot camp, if I recall correctly. Yep. Um, so what was what was the rough ratio uh, in your program 
for male to female? Um, so I was in a class of about 25 students, and it was fairly equal. Um, there were more men and women, but it was not by too much, and it was a pretty even number, actually. Did you ever find uh, yourself having any kind of frustration about feeling, well, now that I've gotten to know you, I, I deem this unlikely, but <laughs> did you ever feel like, you know, unwilling to speak up or somehow, like, willing to defer, or did you feel fairly confident and in a supportive environment? I didn't feel unwilling to speak up, and I did feel supported, um, but at the same time I did observe that, um, and you know, it wasn't necessarily a female versus male thing, um, it was a confidence thing, and people that didn't have as much confidence or didn't know really what they wanted to use coding for, didn't have an idea about what they wanted to do with it, felt a little bit more hesitant and probably weren't as likely to speak up um, as much. Sure. Yep. What about you, Susan? You went. You started the physics program and then you went math. Uh, you know, math sciences are definitely areas where it tends to be male-heavy. What was it like at Rice? Um, it, it was tough. I mean, the first years at Rice is a very good school for science and technology and the first years for me, the two years I was in a physics major program, I guess, uh, it were tough. I, I felt like it was very hard for me to kind of catch up with some of my peers and I had I really lost a lot of the confidence I had in high school and I think that was a big part of the reason I ended up dropping out as I didn't of that major because I didn't feel like I was well supported in that and I didn't know enough women that I could help uh, that could help me kind of get through the worst of the confidence issues. The women I did know were very confident and very good at it. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but oddly enough, I felt very comfortable in physics lab. But uh, when I got into math, it seemed like there was a lot, a better gender balance in there. I had good role models as teachers. Um, I, I, I certainly didn't feel very smart in it, <laughs> but I felt like it was more approachable than physics. And I, and I always loved math, so there was really, I, I think it kind of boils down to having had a lot better uh, female role models in math than in any other subject. Uh, I, yeah, I think teacher, you know, who's teaching the class absolutely makes a huge difference. I mean, I had a teacher in high school who was very young and didn't have a lot of experience, and because it was a small high school, uh, I had him junior year for both chemistry and trigonometry, and I had such a horrible experience that I, I did not take the following year physics and calculus the way that I should have. And that was really kind of shooting myself in the head, but I just, I, I so did not enjoy that experience, you know, and in college the same thing, you know, there's the professors that you really want to work hard for and inspire you and um, and then there's the ones that are like, oh God, uh, and work too, Let's, and we'll, we'll get to that about management. Um, I, I sent you guys a, a little link to review about Harvey Mudd and the um, very explicit program that they've uh, engaged with as far as actively trying to have gender balance in their computer science program. And I, you know, I'm, I've wondered a lot whether or not that the way that they've done it is something that can be practically approached by any institution. I, I tend to think yes, but you know, that's just my opinion. What do you guys think? Um, I was really interested in the curriculum that they had set up. So undergrad, my freshman year of school, I actually took a computer science class. My 
roommate at the time, her brother, was an electrical engineering professor, and he convinced us to, like, take this CS engineering course. He told us it would be really fun. <laughs> so we enrolled. We were two of four females in about a 350-person class. Oh, my goodness. And, um, yeah. So, um, and I definitely... So Harvey Mudd in this article, it talks about one of the things they do, which is um, sort of separating the beginning students from those that might have some experience. And I think that that would be a really helpful strategy for institutions to um, educational institutions to apply. Because for me, I mean, I remember going to my first computer science lab and, um, you know, all of the students sitting around me seemed to know what they were doing. I definitely didn't know what I was doing, and I feel like if, you know, the professor or, you know, the TAs or even my classmates, if they could have been aware of, you know, like maybe who were beginners and had no experience at all, then that could have been a helpful piece of information for others to know. So I think that was a really great idea that they had. It sounds like something similar would have been helpful for you with your physics program, Susan. Absolutely. I, I think the, the part of the, the problem I was feeling sort of a... Uh, a confidence as a, I came from a rural high school that didn't have a lot of resources to teach advanced physics or math classes and I was going to school all of a sudden with a lot of people who'd gone to very sophisticated urban high school programs where they took college level math and physics and I felt like everyone was ahead of me uh, and if there had been a program to kind of ease people in to physics majors that wasn't just the traditional physics for poets class um, that it might have been a little bit of a, a less of a it felt like felt like less of a weed out experience. <laughs> and um, I and I wonder, you know, at, at most schools, I wonder if they're. I think it's true that there actually is an intentional weed out. They're not necessarily interested in growing students. They want to find the ones that are potentially going to make them look good or turn into graduate students that'll bring in grant money or something. And I, and I agree. I think I think that's absolutely an issue. Um, and by the way, I, I took physics for poets at UC Santa Cruz. So. <laughs> it, it always looked like a lot of fun, the physics for poets class. <laughs> at Santa Cruz, it was physics that, that didn't do calculus was really the, yeah. the main thing. So it, algebra and trigonometry, <laughs> math, and that was all. So yeah. Got really good at velocity. Um, okay, thank you. So I, uh, Amanda, I know post-General Assembly that your first job was here at Linden Lab, and we're, awesome. we're very happy to have you. Susan, what was your first job? Uh, my first job ever, or is my first job in a, something recognizable as a career? <laughs> Sorry, your first job in the, in the high-tech realm. My first job in high-tech was really uh, right out of college, I guess, because I was starting, I was working for a consulting firm that did technical writing on contract for different companies. And because I'd had some experience with computers, <laughs> I kind of got shoved pretty quickly into the software track. And so I ended up doing... Uh, uh, a nearly a year-long stint at Amico, the oil company, <laughs> helping their technical department uh, with a lot of uh, documentation. Um, and uh, that was kind of my first experience doing software documentation. Well, that sounds exciting. Wasn't it? It was a terrible <laughs> commute, too. <laughs> oh. Well, it was only a year. Okay. <laughs> um, what, Susan, what's the most memorable experience you've had so far in your high-tech career? Oh, my gosh. There have been, I don't know, so many. Um, well, that's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, it, it really it has been amazing uh, just being able to do this and being at, at such a, an amazing time. Like, 
I was at Palm, the, the makers of the Palm operating system. I don't know if anybody remembers the Palm Pilots. <laughs> I had four of those things. <laughs> and what was you cool know, before the iPhone. Yeah, that was my first experience going to an industry, uh, you know, industry conference. Uh, and just the amazing experience of being there in the throes of all these people who love your product and want to participate in your economy. That's and pretty cool. Later, being able to speak at that conference and it was uh, that was a, a real a real charge. And then there are just so many occasions where I've just met amazing people uh, or worked on uh, projects that had it will ultimately have big implications for others. Um, and then just of course the experience of being at Pixar is amazing. The feeling like you know, I'm contributing not just to great software, but to movies that will last beyond that software. Um, and it's pretty cool to see your name in the credits. So. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> A little extra buzz there. Yeah, there you go. But uh, to infinity and beyond. Yes. Sorry, wrong, wrong buzz. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Nerd joke. Uh, Amanda, you, it's like, like we've agreed that Linden Labs your first post-General Assembly job, but you've had a variety of experiences prior to that. What was, what was your... It's been a memorable uh, event for you in your personal career. Um, I think for me the most memorable thing has been really being able to feel like I have become an engineer. And, you know, I started General Assembly and I feel like at General Assembly I learned how to follow instructions really well. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different tools out there now to help you to build web applications and such, and, you know, I could follow those instructions as well. But I didn't feel very confident in being able to actually, you know, like, code. Um, and when I came here, I think the most um, memorable and uh, significant thing has just been really seeing myself grow and develop and actually really feeling like um, an engineer and not an imposter, and being able to solve problems and have an understanding of what's going on and how things work. Um, I don't know, it's actually been a little bit miraculous to me because there have been plenty of times where I felt doubts in this process, but um, it totally happened for me and it's still happening. And it's just, um, yeah, I think when I think back on my experience at Linden Lab, um, it'll be like the place where I, like, learned how to code and be an engineer. So that first pull request, that felt yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, What about the most challenging circumstance? Who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Susan and put you on the spot. So, Susan, how about, for you, the most challenging experience you've had? Most challenging experience. Um, I think the most challenging experience was learning the ropes as a build engineer. <laughs> uh, Tara knows about this. <laughs> it does take a special kind of maniac. Yeah, it's it just the sheer volume of things you have to learn and in a very short period of time. I mean, I, I was getting used to programming by the time I was, you know, by the end of my side, sort of career as a technical writer. Um, because I had been basically doing more programming than writing docs by that point, but I was—I didn't have to do it for a living, and it was just something that was an aid to me in my in my writing projects. Whereas then build support, building build support, it became very much the thing I was supposed to do from day to day, and so I had to learn a new level of rigor in my coding. 
and to learn to document my code, which you'd think a technical writer would just know to do by default, but it's really easy to forget. It's funny how that turns around, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and and I and I had to you know learn to participate in code reviews and things that didn't really apply when I was just doing things for my own purposes. Um, not to mention all of the system administration level stuff I had to learn. <laughs> I felt pretty ignorant for a long time. Um, but I, what is was amazing about that process is that it does come to you after a while, and then you begin to feel proficient. And that is where you really start to feel strong. And hopefully you also felt a great deal of support in that process. That The support was key. I think if I'd just been thrown into it and been not supported or worse, had the, you know someone who was critical a lot of the time, I would probably have just said, yeah, this isn't for me. I think I'm just going to go back to technical writing. So both of you have had a variety of uh, supervisors and managers and whatever, executive management. Um, over the years, what do you look for in in having a good manager? So, Amanda, let's start with you. Um, having a good manager, I think it's definitely a person who really listens. Um, to me, management is a ton about growing and developing people, and I think in order to do that well, you really need to know the person that you're working with. And I think that the only way to do that is to really listen to them, to not assume things too quickly, and to also um, be a good facilitator so that you can help them to think through uh, issues on their own or um, goals by themselves because it's ultimately you know, them in this process. But um, yeah, so basically someone who listens well is supportive and who knows how to facilitate discussion or thoughts so that the bulk of the work is being done by the other individual. What about you, Susan? I, I totally agree with Amanda on the uh, fact that the, 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 the best managers I've had, and I've been blessed to have a lot of them, um, are a lot of good ones, are people who have been very supportive and especially who are active in uh, contributing to the growth and, and mentoring their employees. Um, because if people do get frustrated when they, they, they cannot uh, sort of achieve the next level in their career, even if that's not a position trans, you know, change. It's the ability to grow their skills, to do personal development, and to learn new things. Uh, and if there's not a lot of support there for that, it becomes very hard to, to, to be, feel happy in that job. Uh, another thing I think some of the, the best managers in my past have been able to do is really diffuse stressful situations and kind of... Uh, kind of shelter their people from the worst of an organization's uh, madness in some cases. <laughs> um, you know, to trying, to trying to keep things on an even keel is really important, particularly in a, in a discipline like, like build engineering where things get pretty hot and heavy sometimes and it, it, it really helps to have somebody who can diffuse a stressful situation. You bring up a great point uh, that I, I, it, was, it was nice to hear that you've had a lot of really great managers. Um, have either of you had managers that just made you want to give up and crawl under a rock? Yes. <laughs> how, how long would you last under those managers? I, uh, I can't... Oh, go ahead, Amanda. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, well, that manager was fortunately at an internship, um, so it was a temporary stint anyway. Um, yeah, so not that long. <laughs> and, and what about that person was really frustrating? So I think similar to what Susan was saying, um, you know, like 
or this at least made me think of um, this while Susan was speaking, but I think that people want to be inspired. Um, you know, managers want their employees to work hard, and I think employees are more likely to work hard when they feel inspired. Either it's because they believe in themselves, they believe that they can achieve something, or they like believe in the product that they're working on. And um, this manager in particular uh, just, um, well, one, I didn't feel like he had a strong vision of the product or company that we were working at, and I really didn't feel like he cared about the people that he um, that he was managing, and I just, I honestly, I had a little respect for him because I didn't think that he got it. Like, I just, there are so many things I felt like he was missing, and I didn't feel comfortable following him, so um, he was not my favorite manager. <laughs> What about you, Susan? Yeah, um, I, I have not had that bad an experience, um, at least not for an extended period of time. But uh, I think one characteristic of a manager I didn't work well with in the past was absenteeism. It's like, I think it's important in some cases for a manager to be involved and present. And I feel like when a manager is too distant or too uninvolved in their employees' day-to-day -day operations, it kind of leaves everybody feeling at sea, and especially people who are new to a role or something like that. They, they, they don't have somebody around to ask questions of or doesn't seem to know what they're working on uh, or doesn't seem to be able to like answer questions or help them out um, or have the time for them to you know, or, or air their complaints or talk about you know, growth opportunities. That can be very frustrating, and I think that's, that kind of stands out in my mind is that I needed a different person at that time in my career and that person was not able to give that uh, which kind of circles around very uh, naturally with your comment about you know your, what you look for in a manager and that yeah. mentoring relationship as well as you Amanda and I think you know not to, to stereotype this heavily but I think uh, a lot of women will, will statistically have a much higher degree of desire for that type of, of more personal relationship mm -hmm. um, Whereas men may feel more like they're, you know, the rugged individualist, and you know, they don't need that, which is not true across the board, obviously. But I think it's important from a diversity standpoint for managers to recognize that that's a possible distinction to be aware of. And then Susan, you you made another big transition, um, which was you went from a build engineer to a build manager, and what what was that like? It, it was very hard um, for me. That, that's, a, that's probably due to mostly to my personality type. Um, it, it's just I, I have always felt a lot of imposter syndrome. And that particularly hits me when making a transition in responsibilities. Um, and going from being just you know, a build engineer to a lead build engineer was a big jump in responsibility for me. And so the immediate thoughts that started hitting me was, Oh gosh, I'm not qualified. Oh my gosh, I can't. No one's going to trust me. How are we, people who are are in this group who've worked here longer than me? I don't. I don't. How am I going to do this? Um, and I don't think I would have gotten through it without having a lot of people who were really supporting me and voicing their support of me. Support of me. Um, it's uh, over time that feeling has calmed down somewhat, Good and to then, hear. it leaves me the, the ability to focus on the real issues, which is like, how are we going to get our work done? <laughs> Um, but it's amazing how much it, in mental space that imposter syndrome can take up when you allow it to. Oh, that's certainly true. And it never, in my experience, it never fully goes away. You just get better at telling it to shut up. Right. <laughs> so fake it till you make it, right? 
And Amanda, you're currently in a individual contributor role. Is is moving into a management position something that you think about in the future? Yeah, I definitely think about that in the future. I'll have to let your boss know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I have a couple more questions here. Uh, one is, uh, how much are you sensitive or aware of diversity and inclusion efforts in your companies, respective companies? Is it something that's talked about, uh, something that's not really addressed? Uh, something you feel frustrated by or in, uh, encouraged by. Um, I'm going to be starting to take kind of uh, rough surveys on on how people are experiencing the companies that they're at on a day-to-day -day level. So we'll start with you, Susan. Well, I think uh, Pixar is making a lot of, uh, of noise about diversity these days, and, and good noise. <laughs> I, I hear that co topic of conversation regularly, and uh, we've also had internal trainings to help us get be more knowledgeable about things like unconscious bias. Um, I think there's still a long way to go. Um, you know, like most tech companies, we have a lot of work to do in increasing diversity in our tech population. Um, but it's a really, it's been a fantastic experience hearing people just talk about it and forming women's groups at work to talk about these issues, and you know, trying to do a better job of our recruiting and hiring. So. Um, and uh, Pixar has also done some hosting for Girls Who Code camps. Or similar yes, indeed. That, we have a that. Girls Who Code camp going this summer. They're doing an amazing job and just livening up our building uh, as they are actually located in the building I work in. So uh, it's, And I'm also uh, mentoring one of the girls in the, in the camp. So That's fantastic. I think it's an amazing uh, thing that, that that group is doing, and I, I just really look forward to it every year. Awesome. Passing on your mentoring. That's right. Passing it, pay, paying it forward. <laughs> uh, Amanda, how do how do you feel about your current environment? Well, now after hearing what Susan had to say, <laughs> um, I'm really impressed by that. I haven't, you know, surveyed too much. I don't know what other companies are doing in terms of diversity and inclusion, but. Um, you know, to be honest, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that uh, Lyndon does for diversity and inclusion specifically. I think, um, I mean, to hear that Pixar is doing workshops so that people can be aware of um, different biases that they might have, I think is really helpful. Um, and I think that that makes a big statement to say that, one, that it's real. Um, and that it's, you know, something that people want to change. I think that's awesome. So this is a slightly orthogonal uh, question, but it's something that I ran across that I found kind of really interesting. There's a new company, I think it's a new company called Comparably, um, and one of the things it does is it allows for better visibility on gender pay gaps in different cities, and in some cases it's unbelievably depressing. Um, I believe when I looked, uh, the number one for pay gap disparity was in Atlanta. Uh, the number they gave was 72% less for women. Um, which is just an unholy number. Um, so there's two things about that. Like one, how accurate do we think that is, since it's you know submitted information, and then two, um, it's you know allegedly an anonymous data gather. You know you have to wonder about um, you know a, a personal information exposure on the internet. Do you think things like that are actually helpful, or do you think it's a little bit weird and you'd like to see it done in different ways? I feel like I, I do kind of have a little bit of distrust of some of the anonymous pay gap data out there. I mean, it's what the news the news articles you see about the pay gap are all drawing from that kind of information. But it's not clear to me how it's gathered. And if it's all volunteer-based data, then of course the people who, are, who believe they're experiencing the largest pay gap are going to report the most often. Uh, on the other hand, it's clear there actually is a pay gap. 
whether whether or not these anonymous uh, or volunteer surveys are totally accurate, they are somewhat accurate, I'm quite certain. And you, you hear it from individual people as well. I've heard it from people I know who have found out about their pay gap, and I've heard it, you know, in, in other... I suspect there are actually some really uh, better handled studies that uh, do show more of this, just on a more limited scale. Um, it's something we absolutely need to work towards, and I just I want to see us work towards surveys like that that have more transparency in how they gathered their data. But then you expose the privacy issue, just like you talked about. So there's not an easy, easy solution there. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is, you know, we don't want there to be a significant pay gap, but it's the other thing to remember is it's not like there's a set scale for all men and all women yeah. that pay scales are, are actually fairly arbitrarily calculated based on your offer and how desperately they need you and you know how much competition there was, et cetera, et cetera, how good a negotiator you are in the hiring process. And so it's uh, you know the only time that I could see there being the ability to have uh, true consistency is in a in a managed way, you know, I hate to say the word union because that makes people all twitchy, but in a way where there's there's actually just a fairly set step uh, set of pay grades per level and, and it's advertised and you know that based on the level that you're on it's in a, within a, you know, a couple of percentage points of anybody else. Um, and then the devil's argument against that is that you know somehow you're either penalizing uh, really significantly amazing performers or somehow inadvertently rewarding people who are you know on the lower end of the scale by not allowing for that difference. It's something that I as a manager have, have thought about a lot and I the more I think about it the more I think what a really challenging problem this is. Mm -hmm. But I certainly I think you know as you said it's definitely there is some form of gap and we need to figure out at least some way of addressing it. Um, hopefully one of these days we'll figure out something. I've heard there are companies out there that I can't remember the name of them that are actually making all of their salaries public, just as a public, uh, just as a, uh, a government agency would have to. Um, and uh, it's an interesting move. I wonder if that'll catch on. <laughs> are they doing it in such a way that it's identified, or they're just publishing no, salaries? No, uh, not identified, positions? but based on the position, I believe. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I've thought a little bit about this as well, and even thinking about some of my classmates at the at General Assembly who accepted jobs, and um, I think that I've well, I've sort of thought about it in terms of, um, you know, I think originally I thought, well, maybe there's a pay gap because of performance. Maybe, you know, like men are just performing better. But then I started to realize that I think that simply thinking about it that way isn't getting the whole story. And um, I think it's not, you know, that maybe females aren't as intelligent or like they don't perform as well. But I really think that you know, I've seen a lot of beginning female coders now in the past year, and they just don't exhibit as much confidence in their work in an early stage as I think maybe males do. Um, and I don't know, so I think that, you know, that can definitely affect performance, and then that will affect salary. And, um, yeah, I think it's just, like you said, a really complicated problem. But, um, Which is slightly, well, maybe it's somewhat related to unconscious bias, or somehow putting the wrong emphasis on evaluations um, mm -hmm. for those for those compensation adjustments. Yeah, it's it's an interesting problem. 
I want to thank you ladies again for your time. It was great talking to you, and perhaps we'll see you around again on this podcast with new topics. Cool. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Who Code Radio. For more information, go to www.womenwhocode.com.